Dropout Podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Adventuring Academy. My name is Brennan Lee Mulligan. With me today is a very special guest, Mr. B. Dave Walters. Uh, you might know Dave from his work as a writer for IDW and Wizards of the Coast. He also plays Victor on L.A. by Night and was the dungeon master for Theogony of Kairos. Dave, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for pronouncing Theogony of Kairos correctly. No one ever does. So. What, are you talking about? What, you don't know how to say Theogony? A bunch of friggin' Luddites out here, Philistines. You know, a funny story. We were just at WonderCon this last weekend, and I was talking about Theogony of Kairos in one of the panels, and the poor sign language interpreters were like, uh... <laughs> What even is that? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, keep up, read the classics, translate, you know, Hesiod in the sign language. Yeah, so yes, we're gonna go some deep academic, philosophical, arcane, quasi theological. Yeah, you know, that's what you invited me for. That's uh, that's that. Those are the things I do. Yes, did not come to fuck around, Dave. Mm -hmm. uh, Well, this is actually a great place to start because. this is obviously a little vodcast we do for people that want to run games or yeah. just learn how to play in games better. Yeah. Uh, and all things tabletop RPG, you're someone that has experience in Dungeons and Dragons, and then outside of that, in mm-hmm. World of Darkness and a lot of other veins and uh, tabletop games. Theogony of Kairos, I love so much. And for those that don't know, it's basically a a, a story about people gifted with sudden deityhood. Yep. Uh, and it uses the mechanics of 5e, which I think anyone who's played D&D knows that you get to 20th level, you're effectively a god. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what motivated you to create such a dynamic setting and like what, because I love people who tackle D&D to tell a unique story in that system that's never been told before. Well, first of all, this is already my favorite interview ever, so thank you. <laughs> Brava, brava, sir. Um, well, a couple things. The reason why I wanted to do it is in Dungeons & Dragons, I find most groups never get to level 20 for a variety of reasons. Uh, just logistical reasons of it's hard to keep people going that long, because uh, usually that's you know three, four years of gameplay. Uh, I think there's a common misconception that when you get to the high level, the game is over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also just that you might be ready to try something new because again, you've been at it so long by now. So I wanted to really show um, how much can really be accomplished at the end game and how great it is that you have these characters that are basically, like you said, functionally gods. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to show both how the players could apply that power and the repercussions of that power. Because one of the things that I told my cast when we started, I was like, look, you know, you can summon a tidal wave and destroy the enemy kingdom. You really can. But then you got to deal with the refugee crisis afterwards. And I also told them, I was like, look, you can stand in the air throwing around meteor shower. But the whole army that's going to come at you, 10,000 dudes are going to shoot arrows at you. And, you know, statistically speaking, 2,000 of them will be crits. So (laughs) you're going to get killed. So manage it. And the reason why I started that story at level zero, uh, because, again, spoiler alert, they they start at level zero. And then they're gifted with their powers by the gods. Uh, The whole show's up on YouTube, the whole run of it, so you can see why they do it. But the reason why I did that is I wanted their town of Relebness to matter. Because if I'd start, I was like, you know, day one, minute one, episode one, here's the bully, and now you've got Disintegrate. What do you do? I blast him, you know? Whereas if I took some time to be like, well, here's the town, here's the bully, like, you do hate him, but here's some context to why he is how he is. Mm-hmm. Now you've got Disintegrate. What do you do? And, and they, they had to think before they acted, which is what I really enjoyed about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was also why I presented them with so many issues that couldn't necessarily be solved with force. Mm-hmm. Um, because to, to use a, a, a slightly tangential example, um, one of my favorite heroes is Superman and, and to tell a compelling Superman story is difficult because you have a fundamentally indestructible, morally implacable hero. Mm-hmm. So your only real ways to challenge a character like that are hit him with something greater than himself, like, you know, dark side or brainiac or something, or hit him with something that he can't just punch his way out of like Lex Luthor. Mm-hmm. And I did both with them. Uh, I was like, so here's, you know, goblins have overrun the town. And yeah, you can squash any one of them, but there's 85 of them and there's four of you. What are you going to do? Right. 
you know, or other times where here's this, you know, deity that is equal to or greater than you, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? And I, I think more than anything to, to almost skip to the end of my like storytelling soliloquy yeah. is, you know, <laughs> the reason why these stories matter, the reason why people play tabletop RPGs, in my opinion, is to, and why video games will never completely replace tabletop, mm-hmm. is you want the experience of feeling like you are at cause in the narrative, that your actions or your inactions matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as a, a good DM gives your characters the, the maximum number of opportunities to have that happen, you know, to, to make their contribution be significant. Because in life, we're so often denied that. Yeah. So That's I, very true. I wanted them to feel like they had a hand in this world and they had a hand in what happened in it. And I, I think we accomplished that. And hopefully, hopefully we might get to revisit those characters and situations. I would love that. And I think to your point, I've been playing D&D since I was 10 years old. I've gotten one character to seventh level. So mm-hmm. your point about 20th level is very, very accurate. And I think that there is something really beautiful in there. And I always flip back because I love Superman too. Mm-hmm. And it's always a very interesting thing when people go like, oh, Superman can't have an interesting story because he just will beat up any bad guy. And that always is, is flabbergasting to me because it goes like, so you're you're – idea of dramatic conflict begins and ends at punching a guy. Right. Like, look at the wealth of human storytelling. Forget uh, genre fiction for a second. Just look at fiction. Right. Most stories aren't about, will I be able to punch the guy? Right. Right? They're about uh, conflicts of interest and betrayal and human emotion and uh, moral ambiguity. And I think with Superman, the idea of, like, the stories that are so meaningful to me about Superman are that idea of what is tempting about power, and if you had it all, what would you do with it? Yeah. Uh, and I think that there's a lot in Theogony of Kairos that goes into this idea of, man, my character's 20th level. And then you're like, the world stays complex. Right. And perhaps your you know, big ninth level spell solutions to these problems are only going to make things more complicated. And again, that only worked because we took the time to paint the picture of the world before. Yeah. Uh, if, if we'd had the exact same character in the exact same situation and they began at the beginning with their powers, mm-hmm. they would have approached everything differently and it would have been a very different show. Um, but the I was able to help them take a different journey because, again, the, when they actually got into the world and actually cared about the world, I mean, I got tears in episode two. <laughs> That's that's always my benchmark. It's funny. Like I'm like, how soon can I make someone cry? That's when I know I'm doing a good job. Uh, like now with the comic with a, a dark and wish, which yeah. uh, again those characters are level twenty for similar reasons mm-hmm. uh, that I wanted to show that into the game. You know, mm-hmm. it's still me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I say I I write on what I call the Fowler scale. That when I submit the scripts or I tell Tess what's going to happen, how many oh gods, oh no's, or how hard she tries to convince me not to do it, then I'm pretty much on the right track. Yeah. Like, if I'm like, this shit happened, and she's like, that seems legit, I'm like, nope, it's scrapped. Yeah. <laughs> right? I'm like, now nah, this shit happened. She's like, ah, don't do that. I'm like... I want pain and horror, or we're not doing justice. It, you know, it's just it, stakes. Stakes. You know, I mean, I, I keep joking about this, but I mean, it's not that I set out to create torture porn. Yeah. I think that's unfulfilling. Yeah. And quite frankly, I think that's where uh, Game of Thrones went off the rails. Mm-hmm. Uh, at me. <laughs> uh, but it's when, when people just suffer and are miserable for no reason, you know? Right, exactly. Uh, uh, you know, again, I think that's the note that Zack Snyder missed in Batman versus Superman, which I didn't hate those films. Uh, mm-hmm. I definitely had some, some, some problems with them, but I didn't hate those movies. But I think that was the number one thing that I think really bothered people, even if they couldn't articulate it, is you don't want to see a world where Superman hates being Superman. Right. You know? Yes. That the clock goes off and Clark Kent's like, ah, I gotta save the world again. Exactly. You know, you don't want that. Well, it's very, it's really interesting to me that no one has figured out a thing that feels pretty obvious to me about Superman like characters or a 20th level paladin in a game of D&D, which is you can be an innately good person who's excited to go out and go do good in the world and still show someone grappling with the temptation of doing the wrong thing. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, and there's nothing, it's like, that's it's the interesting part to me is all those moments where Superman could just, you know, laser beam somebody and go, yeah, that'd be really nice. I'm not going to do that. Well, you know, I think I, I've, I've made this argument to people a lot of times that, that Superman and Captain America serve the exact same narrative function mm -hmm. of the superlative hero, yeah. of the person who makes the right call. Mm -hmm. You know, um, again, you and I were talking right before we went live here, because to me, good and evil, you know, those words get thrown all around a lot, but it's really a spectrum from selfishness to selflessness. Yeah. You know, to what extent do you put someone else's needs ahead of your own? Right. You know, um, and the the you take those characters who like right now today in 2019, if there'd never been a Captain America and somebody was like, he's Steve Rogers, the world war II super soldier and debuted him. You'd be like, get the fuck out of here. Like what? <laughs> like, what? what? You know? no, but read the room. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but, but he's important, and I would submit now more than ever, and again, Superman, for the exact same reasons, even though their their power set is wildly different, what the this function they provide is identical. Yeah. Of the person who does the right thing when it is not popular, who does the right thing when it is not easy, mm -hmm. uh, who does the right thing, especially in Superman's case, when he does not have to. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's what makes those characters important and relevant. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that to, to the extent to which you can show that in a fictional way or provide your characters with that experience in a narrative way. Yeah. Is the the extent to which you are going to create uh, a set of circumstances that is going to like resonate with them? And, like it's uh, same thing. Theogony uh, again. Spoiler alert! I had them. Uh, they had their powers, oh. and they were ah, we're under attack. <laughs> Yeah. Alphonse, yeah. I know that you want us to stay on track. We do have time for audience questions. Please relax. Sorry. This is just a flesh wound. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were going through a goblin warrens shortly after they had their powers. And of course, they're fireball, disintegrate, fire. Because of course, you know, you're level 20 now. And you're like, get some goblins. Mm -hmm. And I had them kick open one of the doors. And it was a nursery full of baby goblins. Oh. I'm like, what are you going to do? They're in there. You know? Are, are, and I didn't, I was like, nothing else. Like, warrens is on fire. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So let's talk to me about this for a second, because with Theogony, you're, you're involving the sort of thematic element of the divine, which on a primal human level, we have always associated with morality, right? Mm -hmm. It's only in kind of modern philosophy that we go like, let's talk about ethics outside of the supernatural. But mm -hmm. deep in our mythology, we do associate you know, good and evil with like the gods and then spirits that work against us you have a much different kind of moral ambiguity you play with as Victor in mm -hmm. L.A. by Night. Uh, uh, what is playing, and this is you on the other side of the screen, mm -hmm. uh, but still very much a storyteller. What do you look at when you look at Victor, and what is the type of moral ambiguity that is very much not the Superman story that you guys are exploring in L.A. by Night, and what's valuable about that? I think he, contextually... The thing that sets the world of darkness apart from most other systems, not all systems, because obviously there's infinite games now, but, but, but that world exists in a place where there is no absolute good. Uh, which Victor has said outright <laughs> more more than once. You know, it's like none of us are good. Like yeah. you really need to understand that. In in the world where there where the beast reigns, there is no ultimate goodness. Um, arguably, there is no ultimate badness, and then the sabata like hold my beer, you know. <laughs> um, I, I, I think um, the world of darkness in general, and vampire in particular, does a pretty good job of capturing the struggle of the normal human life. Except we've all got Jiminy Cricket with a chainsaw sitting on our shoulder, <laughs> you know. And and I've very much tried to play Victor in such a way that his goal is to protect the people that he cares about first and then to protect everyone that he can second mm -hmm. um, if you notice like even though he's killed his fair share of people on the show sure. 100% of the time I gave them a chance not to it, mm -hmm. he's always like we really don't have to do this you know that like the door is right over there like I can make you forget that you gave up. You should no. Okay, cool. Blam, you know. And because that that's that's the way I've constructed that character. And it's funny because I think of all the ones I've played, he is probably the closest to me mm -hmm. 
in the sense of like if I became a vampire like 15 years from now, like I probably have that dude's life. Like those yeah. are, I'd make very similar choices probably. So when when confronted with things in real time, it's very easy for me to be like, he'd do this, he wouldn't do this, he'd do that, he wouldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, like I don't have to like dig for it at all. That's awesome. Um, and and I tried to show. You know, the, when when we were playing these characters, I will take one step back even further than that. The first time I ever played on stream mm -hmm. was in the charity twenty charity game with Satine Phoenix in December twenty seventeen, and we played a vampire one shot that Jason ran. Mm -hmm. And I played a gangrel. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when this show rolled around, everybody's like, so you're going to play a gangrel again? And I was like, mm, no, because I love Ventru. Yeah. And, and there actually was a push to get me to still play the gangrel. And I was like, this is the thing. I knew this was the show that was going to reintroduce V5 to the world. I knew this was going to be a lot of people's first experience to it. Like we were going to be the vanguard. Mm -hmm. And I knew in the back of my mind that even if I'd played the world's best gangrel, mm -hmm. I'd always be like, mm, should have been Ventru though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah, should have been adventure. Uh, yeah. really, first of all, Gangrel are my personal favorite clan. Um, uh, but second of all, I love the, the venture to me, in a lot of ways, it feels like you can't do a game of vampire without them. I don't, I, not, to, not to say, but you, I just don't think you can because the, they are the archetypal fucking Dracula vampire. They are the like, oh, what we understand vampires to be on the Bram Stoker, yeah. like manipulative, brilliant mastermind, this like undead genius um, uh, that feels necessary to the story of what a vampire is. Um, now, what's interesting is is I feel like in D and D, there's always this idea of like the the plot hook or the adventure or the quest, yeah. and then. In a game of vampire, I feel like World of Darkness has almost surreptitiously, but just in the idea of how you make your characters, it's so much looser than that, where the stories and chronicles in a World of Darkness setting are much more focused on like survival, and the mechanics yeah. there are like, hey, within the next 10 days, you gotta drink blood. Yep. And there's no quest, but like, you know, I guess, do you wanna get power? How are you preserving your humanity during these long nights? Yeah, uh, well, a couple things. I, I think, to, to your point about Clan Ventru, I think there is definitely a, a, a baseline rebelliousness in the world of darkness. Mm -hmm. Obviously, some of the clans really embrace that, you know, but it's, it's kind of in the ethos. And so when you have the most dad vampires, the most authoritarian structure vampires, I think it's, it's pretty normal and common for people to want to rebel against that. Yeah. You know, it'd be like, F those guys. <laughs> and so I wanted to show Ventru that could be different from that and another take on the mythos and that they didn't have to be stodgy and things like that. So that's that's what I, I wanted to bring to the table with Victor. And, you know, hopefully I has. Uh, <laughs> but, but to your other point, V5 in particular has done something I think is really interesting that has made the game more about the coterie. You actually, in character creation in V5, you create the coterie before you create your individual characters. Whoa! Yeah. That's, that solves a lot of problems with older yeah. editions of Vampire. Exactly. Well, that, that was the thing that, that Jason Carl would always say. that like In previous editions, there was really no reason for a coterie to exist. Not really. Yeah. You know, no, like, of course. Yeah, or at least past you know, a couple of days or a couple of hours of you know shared um, interest. You know, like yeah. uh, you and I need to get out of this club together before this werewolf eats us both. Yeah. And then we're gonna get outside and be like, you yeah. know. Um, <laughs> so now you you arrive at the reason why your coterie exists and you have specific functions and it actually affects you uh, mathematically and numerically now based on why you're together. Very cool. Which is neat. Um, and then second to that, um, you're right. It is usually less of a game about go here and, you know, capture the magic sword from the one-armed skeleton. Got my eyes on you, buddy. You know? <laughs> um, and more about how are you making your way through these nights. Yeah. Um, but, you know, of course, there, there very much can still be, you know, the man in black at the tavern giving the quest for yeah. sure. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think you're right. If if Dungeons and Dragons is more task based, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to this place to do this thing. Yeah. Uh, the World of Darkness is more about let's just sort of make it to tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I think it's really well. It's interesting to hear that it's more coterie based now because there's there is you know there's an implicit thing in D and D of like oh yeah have a character with some cool backstory. 
in white or in World of Darkness, there is something explicit. It is like here is what here's the beast. Your character has this many humanity. You're like we are going to spell out for you what type of experience you're supposed to be having playing this game. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly powerful, both for, you know, I played a recently, and my friend Nick Marini ran a game of of Vampire 5e, uh, where uh, I was playing a Giovanni vampire, and it it was this thing of like, but he was, there was like a werewolf and a mage, he was doing like a cross-pollination thing, Mm -hmm. and he was like, why am I hanging out with these life forms, these organic, (laughs) these like living things? And it was this thing of, I took this one flaw that made him, he, he recoiled at clerics, at priests and clergy and crosses. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, what's that? And I was like, oh, he's still very Catholic. And none of the vampires around him seem to believe in God anymore. And he's like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> All these people are going straight to hell. Um, That's when the La Sombra are like, mm, <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but I remember also that like. Uh, there are some really powerful things as someone who has an interest in philosophy mm-hmm. that are really fun about Vampire 2. Specifically, you name-checked the Sabbat before, and I remember playing a gangrel Sabbat antitribu. So a gangrel that had been... Also, that was college. Yeah. yeah right. That's, you were like, yo, I've got seven dots in potence and 15 dots in celerity, and I have wings. God. Yeah, I did it too, man. I was, Eerie, I did, it was were an, you were you there? Yeah. I, I was the Asimite. Yeah, no, we were in the, we were in the same campaign. I was the shadowy death dealer. Yeah, right. I am the assassin. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the uh, uh, I remember there was this like finding these alternate means and convictions of playing these vampires does allow you to explore some really cool stuff because the game is more more explicitly about exploring character, which for a lot of people, myself included, is how the game of tabletop is fun. Remember this gangrel had this thing where he had been inducted into the Sabbat and left and become an Anarch because he basically said, the Camarilla and the Sabbat are two sides of the same coin. Depravity is a commentary on humanity. And cruelty is, it's like, look at humans, They've mastered cruelty. Being cruel is uh, as human as you can be. I'm going to embrace the beast, and that means I am neither depraved nor clinging to my humanity. And had this very like predator, animalistic mindset of like I'm not going to cause any undue harm, and I'm not going to flinch about killing people. Yep. And you're like and Golconda. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. You turn into Doctor Manhattan. You've arrived at your final form. Yeah. That's I, you know that I think that is one of the things that is baked into V5. Which which is one of the things that Victor has said outright more than once is that you know there's not a big difference between the way the Camarilla and the Anarchs are behaving and there's not a big difference between the way the Sabbat and everyone else is behaving. Now, canonically in V5 the Sabbat have been wiped out. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I've read enough comic books in my time to know that's <laughs> not true. Um uh, and and uh, the reality is, I mean, vampires are an infectious disease. It just takes one. Mm-hmm. And if one makes it they can create 50 more and you're back in the Sabad business. So yeah. even though, you know, by the letter of the law, there are no more Sabad. I'm like, mm, yeah, believe it when I see it. Mm, yeah, well, I'm hoping not to see it. But yes, that's <laughs> yeah. Somebody's going to show up with like his face on backwards and bad wings. I'm like, oh, I know that guy. I know what this is. <laughs> give me a, give me back the Inquisition. Oh, man. Uh, uh, incredible. Um, uh, so we have some audience submitted questions. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, you could have seen this episode a whole week earlier on Dropout. Uh, you got to head over to dropout.tv and sign up. Also, the only uh, questions that we take are submitted on our Dropout user Discord. So head on over there and sign up for your free trial today. Uh, this first one is from Kyle Labonte. I know Kyle. What's Kyle. up, Kyle? Hey, Kyle. Thanks for the question. Um, I DM for a group of players that are all typically DMs themselves. Because of their level of experience, I find them often guessing twists or plot points pretty far ahead of time. I don't think the answer to that situation is make my twists more twisty. So how do I lean into this intuition of theirs and use it to provide a better experience? That's a good question. That is a great question, Kyle. Thank you for this. Um, I pulled the the whole Miss America. That's a great question. Thank you, because I'm stalling. No, I I would say, you know, high quality storytelling Mm -hmm. is simultaneously inevitable, but still surprising. That's perfect. So 
even if they know, like, I mean, one of the one of the greatest examples of this ever to me is the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, mm-hmm. when the Green Goblin is standing there holding Mary Jane in the in the in the the cable car full of kids, yeah, and he's like, "Some monster presents you with a sadistic choice: choose," and drops them both, mm-hmm. and it does that zoom in on Spider-Man's face and Mary Jane's in one eye and the kids are in the other. Yeah, that is one of the best scenes of all time. Yeah, so. If let's just say, even if your characters have a pretty good idea that the Green Goblin is going to do that to them, mm-hmm. he's still going to do that to them. You know, right. like you're still going to be there and be faced with it. So I think rather than go full M. Night Shyamalan and keep trying to be like, no, the skeleton was the bad guy, it was just the skeleton's arm. <laughs> you know, just do what you intended, but do it in, in with integrity and do it with depth and do it with impact and do it so that it matters. So that when the time comes that you do unveil your big thing, even if they had some idea that it was going to happen, it will still be a fulfilling and exciting experience. I 100% agree. And I think that, I'll say this as someone who DMs a lot and rarely gets an opportunity to play, um, which I feel like I say on every episode of this uh, podcast and people must pity me by now. I'll, I'll run something for you, brother. Don't worry about it. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> I am in. Uh, for, yeah, hit me up after the show. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, uh, what I would say is, as someone who gets to pr- uh, play rarely, I don't mind the tropes being confirmed because just because they're tropes and I saw them coming, I've never gotten to be in them. Right. And sometimes seeing the train coming straight for you a mile away, it's still a joy to get run over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really is still joyous to be like, wow, the villain did the big reveal and I was there. Yep. So I would say that um, sometimes those classic tropes can be incredibly satisfying, just like you're saying, like because you're still going to have to make the choice. Mm-hmm. Um the other thing I will say too is that twists and turns in a story are excellent, they're great, but um, there are a lot of other shapes a story can take than twists that are equally satisfying. Yeah. Like sometimes you're talking about that like an ultimatum is not a twist, but it's still awesome and cool and you know mind racking for a PC to go through a good ultimatum. Yeah, I, I like to do things like playing with the villain's motivation. You know, mm-hmm. why are they doing this? You know, um, what is what? What are they really trying to achieve? I also like to do things like if you have creatures that are intelligent, portray them as intelligent. Again, mm-hmm. that's why I did so much with goblins and Theogony of Kairos. Like they're small, but they're smart. Yeah, you know, and they had their own intentions and their own dialogue and their own thing they were trying to do. And again, the more that you can breathe life into these people that you're dealing with. It still becomes less about, you know, the the guy with the handlebar mustache tied her to the train tracks, you know, and it was like, meh, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, well, why did he do that? You know, did yeah. she have it coming? You know, right. you know, where did he go? Don't he you was? understand? She is a demon that can only be killed by an oncoming train. I was about to save the population of the city. Also, what have you done? Also, you just uh, ruined the end of a Dark and Wishes uh, plot line. That's where we were going. <laughs> We were gonna. She's gonna get tied to the train tracks, and it was uh, now. I gotta gotta rewrite the whole thing. Mm, yeah, yeah, great. Uh, well, the, another thing I would point out too is, um, let's say that you're your. Cause I love tropes just as a concept. I love this idea of these kind of mimetic living archetypes within our stories and culture and subverting them and sometimes not subverting them, right? right. And, and what measure do you do that in? So if you're talking about people that are what my, my uh, player in my home games would call uh, their genre savvy, right. like the players know story, and even if they're not trying to metagame, they're like, ooh, I know this. Um, uh, I actually had a player playing a luck child, like an entropomancer, luck magician in my campaign. And they would guess my dungeons ahead of time. They'd be like, this hallway is going to be filled with poison darts. And I'd be like, God damn it. But they'd be like, my character's a luck child. They guessed. <laughs> and of course, it's filled with poison darts. But what you can do is if you feel like you know your players well enough, you can go like, okay, they're expecting me to uh, uh, subvert a trope, uh, so maybe I won't. Or maybe you'll figure out like how many levels of Inception you need to go down. Uh, Brian Murphy, in the first season of Dimension 20, we had a, a high school AU game of 5e. So it's like Evanston, Illinois, suburb, but you know, tieflings and dragonborn, yada, yada, yada. Uh, spoiler alert for season one of Dimension 20, Fantasy High, but 
Uh, the villain of the season was secretly the vice principal the whole time. And episode uh, in episode one, uh, he's introduced as like, all right, you're all getting detention, as like the bad guy from The Breakfast Club. So he's, and Murph in like the final episode was like, he's the bad guy, but he seemed like an asshole. So I thought he couldn't be the bad guy. <laughs> and I was like, no, he seemed like an asshole because he's an asshole. Right. Uh, uh, but there is like... So you can sometimes, if you're worried about like how those twists work, okay, anticipate genre savviness. Mm -hmm. Can you get an extra twisty by actually stepping back so that it's less twisty? Yep. Like, oh, this was what it seemed like? How surprising. Yep, that is true. Um, yeah, oh, I love tricking people. Uh, <laughs> that yeah. is a joy of mine. Well, and again, you've got the fact that the the dice will surprise you and betray you. You know, your fellow characters will surprise you. Uh, there's still a lot of ways, even if you see that train coming, that it might take off and be like the flying time traveling train. <laughs> yeah. Back yeah. to the future style. The I will say too, uh, this is just a hardcore DM tip. This is just a little trick. So this mm -hmm. is not grand theory. If if you really want to trick your players, if you really want to have a twist in there, and this is this is in like some fudging the die roll territory, they will often confer with each other at the table and in so doing, show you what they're expecting to happen. Now, if you're a DM with integrity and they guess correctly, you know, of course they guessed correctly, you should reward them. But if you were a less scrupulous DM, you could hear them conferring and just change what the truth was. I'm not yeah. advocating for that. I'm just saying you can well, do that. You know, believe it or not, you, you, you say that as like a scrupulous or unscrupulous thing. Believe it or not, I don't think it's an unscrupulous thing. Because personally, I feel like it, my job as a dungeon master is to provide a certain experience. Mm -hmm. my, job, my job as a dungeon master is not to give you something like absolutely rules is written. Mm -hmm. It's to make you feel something and have you and have you leave an impact. Mm -hmm. Like the extent to which your players are having an emotional experience, the extent to which you're succeeding. Yeah. Uh, your only enemy is meh. If they're like checking <laughs> their phones or something, and it's for anything other than you know their character sheet or a dice rolling app. Yeah. You know you're going off track. So, I mean, again, sorry, uh, my players earmuffs. Uh, there's times I know where I'm like, you're going through the dungeon. You can turn left or right. I know the next door is the dragon. It, it just is. <laughs> You can go left, you can go right, the dragon's on the other side of the door. So it, there, there's plenty of times I provide the illusion of choice to tell the story. Right. So if you're in that situation where you're like, again, to continue this metaphor, they know Green Goblins, they're like, Green Goblin's there and he's kidnapped Mary Jane and he's kidnapped the kids. And you hear them saying that and you're like, huh, okay, maybe it wasn't Green, uh, Green Goblin mm -hmm. in there. Uh, maybe somebody has kidnapped his kid and he actually already rescued Mary and you know like and you do this all on the fly because you think it will provide a more fulfilling experience. They get to the Brooklyn Bridge, Mary Jane is standing on it holding the Green Goblin and the uh, kids and she's like I've been fucked up this whole time and you're like you're gonna kill the Green Goblin and she's she, like I choose the kids and she's like this is less of an ultimatum than I thought but you did surprise them and mm -hmm. that's what counts. As long um, as it's a fulfilling story. Absolutely. This one's from C. Watkins 24. Thanks, C. Watkins 24. How do you role play? A, oh, I love this question. How do you role play a character with a higher intelligence than yours? Physical traits like strength and dexterity are pretty straightforward, but for the interaction traits, intelligence, wisdom, charisma, it seems more challenging the greater they vary from your own abilities. How do you become a character who has a 20 stat when you as a PC aren't that skilled? <laughs> First of all, I bet you do have a 20 in heart, and that's what matters. But it doesn't because I'm a min-maxer. <laughs> yeah. Heart's the worst stat. Never optimize for heart. Um, uh, I love this question because yeah. I think it gets to something that's very accurate, which is because all the physicality and locales of tabletop RPGs are narrated, you can play a big bruiser character, punch a door, have it narrated that it flies off its hinges, and get that rush of dopamine yep. because you did it. But because the for most games that I've played in, dialogue is in character, mm -hmm. playing that high wisdom, high intelligence, high charisma character can feel really challenging. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, how, how do you make that empowering? Because I know that the sort of PHB covers like, oh, like you can have a character narrate and say like, I talk very well. I My character goes up and talks their ear off. Yes, you can do that, but I think we all have felt that that doesn't it doesn't impact. It doesn't hit and give that high. I would say basically three things in no particular order. I think you need to partner with the DM to understand that you're playing a character who might have traits that you do not possess and as such the people you interact with react to you like you have those traits. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a high charisma can manifest in a lot of ways. It can be charming. It can be beautiful. It can be a lot of things. It could be people just like you, you know. Yeah. So even if you you at the table act like the biggest douchebag around, it's like, mm, but I still like that guy. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. he's that asshole you love to hate, man. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's George Carlin, you know. Yeah. He's an asshole <laughs> with a charisma of 20, you know. So you yeah, partner with the DM to make sure that you know that's who you're manifesting in the world i'd say also make sure your other players know that um so that when they're interacting with you they're treating you as you are a smart person or wise person and the last thing i would say is like anything is act as if Mm -hmm. i I think if you know you're playing this character be like well who do you is a high intelligence character pretend to be that person you know um and then that's the player you play that person at the table and then Absolutely. you're probably going to nail it. And I think you hit something on the head, which is the idea of all of these stats come in a variety of flavors. They're not monolithic. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people will get rattled when they're like charisma and they're thinking about like, oh, I'm thinking about like my older sibling or <laughs> or you're thinking about B. Dave Walters. Clan, maybe you're thinking about Clay Venture. <laughs> They're thinking about these things, but it can come in a flavor that's more natural to you. Yeah. Don't think about, like, if you want to play a high charisma character, think about, like, oh, what's the high charisma that's most comfortable to me? Yeah. I love the idea of, if you're playing, like, a little halfling and you're, like, a naturally very shy person, maybe being the big, ha-ha, bravado, that's one way to do a 20 charisma. Yeah. Maybe you're just fucking adorable. Yeah. and everyone's, you're Shirley Temple. Yeah, you're Shirley Temple. And it's like, oh, jeez, and you get to be real shy, and everyone's like, look at this cutie pie. You can walk around right into the king's vault. That is completely valid. Completely and then the knife valid. comes out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so I think that there's an element of, my, the answer to this question would be tact, uh, tactically, um, define the stat in the way most comfortable for you, the, the player, mm-hmm. and your DM and fellow players. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say also, um, uh, like you're saying, the world react. Like people kind of live in a bubble anyway yeah. when they have that high charisma. How is the world reacting to you? Well, and hey, look, every single one of us knows somebody or has a friend that we think is the smartest, prettiest, funniest person, and they don't think that about themselves. So don't feel like you have to play this role. Just be like, again, that's how you're occurring in the world to everyone else. So do your best, and but don't don't start beating yourself up about I'm doing it wrong because you're not doing it wrong. As long as you're having a good time and you're, everybody at the table's having a good time, you're doing it right. Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think for the other stats, there's interesting stuff there as well because as a DM, you can do a lot support a player in terms of wisdom and charisma. First of all, let's just examine what wisdom in the game actually is. Wisdom is perception. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is there there is only a single skill called perception, but wisdom is perception. It's insight, which mm-hmm. is just perception about people, mm-hmm. right? Back in 3.5, we called that sense motive. Mm-hmm. Um, it is like understanding and awareness, right? Mm-hmm. So you can make someone in wisdom doesn't mean like has good ideas Mm -hmm. you can make somebody a high wisdom character by giving them a quality and caliber of information that you are not extending to the other pcs you notice this you notice that yeah yeah you know so they become more aware because they're literally like in real life a more attentive intuitive person is actually collecting more information you do that through narration at the table and also i think sometimes dms are afraid of editorializing yeah I understand why that is, because you never want to tell players what to do. Right. But for a high wisdom character, you can make them feel more wise by some other character rolls a 10 on a perception. You go, there's a hallway with guards. Um, A character with a 20 wisdom rolls a nat 20 insight perception check. You go, the guards in this hallway are poised to strike. You see them mutter to each other at the corner of their eyes. The sensation of danger fills the room. Mm-hmm. Hair stand up on the back of your neck. And also, um, you can give a lot of information to the players in, in this in this 
set of circumstances that's not necessarily relevant. Mm -hmm. You can start like just describing everyone in the tavern because it's like you're clocking all these things. Yeah. Like again, to use another uh, movie analogy, uh, the Born Identity. If you remember in the first movie when he's like, I don't know my name, but I know that guy is 220 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know that woman has been working at least 16 hours and I know if I need a gun, it's in that pickup truck. You know? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know why I know that, but I do. Yes. You know? That's awesome, right? <laughs> yeah. That's what high wisdom should feel like. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm just collecting all this information. And I think what you're talking about too is something that's very true about storytelling in general, which is DMs control focus. Mm -hmm. So a low, a low perception role doesn't have to be you don't notice anything. It can be, here's a bunch of unrelated details. And the high wisdom character, you go, your eye is drawn to a stranger in the corner of the room. You see mm -hmm. all the other people, but I'm going to choose to describe your high wisdom as highlighting and focusing yeah. on things that are important. I mean, you know, the definition of wisdom, not just in D&D, but in life, is knowledge multiplied by experience. Ooh, so I take love that. that. That's how you portray wisdom. <laughs> yeah. For the last one, intelligence. This is a tricky one because I think this is one that people get really... Um, antsy about because there's a lot of things to how intelligence is tied to I would say like access mm -hmm. and class stuff because mm -hmm. like what does arcana and history and stuff mean it often means education mm -hmm. which is a material tangible resource that is not shared equally in either this world or most fantasy worlds right right so intelligence can feel really challenging in a lot of ways because um, in the way that the warrior feels in power when they smash the dragon real good Wizards feel empowered by knowing stuff, but the way a lot of arcana checks work is the wizard gets info from the D DM, turns to everybody and says, I say that. I say that, yep. And that, you know, that works for moving the story along, but for, for a wizard, you sometimes want to feel like, no, I want to like, I want to be the guy that solves the puzzle and puts the stuff together. Right. So I am not saying that you can do this all the time because this is high preparation. I used to be the head writer for a uh, uh, for a number of summers at uh, the Wayfinder Experience, which is a LARP summer camp. We did a high fantasy. Nerd. Oh, boy, you ain't kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> kidding, zone of safety, zone of safety. I was LARPing last night. <laughs> sure. Uh, but we had this game, it was a high fantasy game, and someone in the game was playing this ivory golem that was the the tutor, this like magic tutor fantasy robot to a group of like royal kids. And mm -hmm. the character was like, oh, like I, I need to be the smartest guy in game. We had, for, because this was real arch high fantasy, written about 30 pages of like world history, and everyone at the camp was like, do I have to read this? And I was like, how much do you know about world history in our real world? And they're like, not a lot. And I was like, no, you don't have to read it. Your character is not into this shit. My friend Jack read all 30 pages of this, and lo and behold, the bad guys in the LARP were villains of the ancient past that had been resurrected. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, he was like, I know how to defeat them. I know their weaknesses. I know all this stuff because I spent three hours of my free time did the homework, yep. doing the homework. And boy, did he get to feel like the wizard in that moment. So if you want to... Um, I would say if you're playing a high intelligence character, ask your DM, hey, is it possible for me to get some world background stuff, even if it's frivolous or ancillary? Yep. Yep. Uh, uh, and as a DM, if you have a character that's like, I'm playing the wizard in the party, but I don't feel like the wizard, uh, see if it's not too much of a strain on your bandwidth, see if you can provide them with some ancillary materials. Well, and don't make don't be afraid to make use of the tools you have at the table. I mean, you've probably got a laptop there. You've probably got a phone there. Send them a text right then. You know, it's like you know that Strahd is definitely not allergic to garlic. That is an ugly rumor, <laughs> but that he hates poinsettias. Send, <laughs> you know, and then they do with that what they do with that. That's so great. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, mm -hmm. So I think always there's some really tangible ways to address this. Again, as long as everybody's having a good time, you're doing it right. Hell yeah. Serpengi. Thank you, Serpengi. Uh, when characters roll for information, how do you decide what information to give on a nat 20? How much is too much? There's I, a deeper question at work here, which is just about like... Nat 20s, yeah. yeah. I personally have a house rule that a nat 20 always succeeds and a nat 1 always fails. Love it, same. The, you know, doesn't matter what you're doing, doesn't matter what you're trying. Uh, you, you will accomplish that task, at least to, to some extent. 
Yeah. Um, I would say if a person rolled a natural 20 on an investigation check, I would give them something pivotal. I wouldn't necessarily give them the entire thing. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, again, let's just say you give them, again, to use another example, you give them that it was Colonel Mustard in the library with the with the candlestick. Mm-hmm. You know, they still have to do what they've got to do to bring Colonel Mustard to justice. You know? <laughs> Uh, it, You've it, just pitched an incredible follow-up to the board game clue. This, uh, <laughs> that's what I do, folks. That's what I do. Uh, but but again, you, you know, the, the through line in all of these things I'm saying is I always come back to the, the player experience. Yeah. And the player that rolls the 20 and cracks the case, that is what is going to stick with them. It's like there, there's a story I always tell. I had a buddy of mine. We were playing uh, Pathfinder. We played from level one to level twenty. Took four years. Wow. Yeah. And he was a dragon slayer. That was his concept. Hell yeah. And very early, around like level six, I gave him an arrow of slang shot. And around level seventeen or so, they fought this red dragon. And I had this whole encounter plan where the dragon was going to come and attack the town, and it was round over round and everything. And he's like, uh, the the first time he sees the dragon, he's like, I want to shoot it with my arrow of slang shot. Which I forgot he had. I gave it to him nine months ago, but he knew. Uh, again, if you're not super familiar with Pathfinder, like it shouldn't have worked, basically. like The dragon had every advantage in the world on the saves. It should not have worked. He rolls natural 20. I roll one. <laughs> that happened. First round, first action, first shot, boom. And I had a I had an eighth of a second to decide. I was like, well, I could I could force this and still have this fight go on, and it's just another fight. Or I can let him down smog. Instantly. One hit smog. You know? Uh, and he did. Shot him down. And But what that meant for him, because he still tells that story. An impossible high that has never run out in that player's life. Exactly. You know, that's the, but, you know, the I didn't do that for him. The dice did it for him. Yeah. All I had to do is let fate manifest the way it wanted to. So, to, to you know, to bring it back around, you know, the, the, the 20s in clutch moments, mm-hmm. let them be clutch. You know, yeah. even if it at least slightly inhibits the story. Like, let's say maybe you don't want your dragon to die, but, you know, because the plot requires the dragon lives. Well, he drives it off. You yeah. know, he's won the day. Yes. You know, but something. He rolls in at 20. It rolls in at one. He hits the dragon in the heart, it vanishes in a puff of smoke, it got killed so hard that it's like in hell now. Or mm-hmm. it's like, oh, something, I needed it to be alive for some reason, but it's it's something, we're honoring the dice. Yep. The dice are a collaborator at the table, you have to honor them. Mm-hmm. What I also love in this question that I think has to do a lot with narrative and storytelling, and it's a job that is, I think, one of the few things that DMs and game masters have to handle is the flow of information in a game, which does have to be handled delicately. And part of why that has to be handled delicately is, I feel like, and I'll I'll speak broadly, Mm -hmm. your players are immersing themselves in a world. And even though they have storytelling instincts, a lot of the fun that the players are having is by responding as truthfully as possible. Meaning in situations where they're like, you introduce an element of horror, they wanna get out. They're telling the story by being in the truthful thing of like, we know this is a cool horror encounter, we're going to honor that coolness by trying to get the fuck out of here as fast as possible, right? right? As a game master, you are interacting with people who are playing characters that exist in a logistical world and therefore are often taking paths of least resistance and trying to, from moment to moment, for lack of a better term, win as much as possible. Solve the mystery as fast as possible, like the characters would honestly want to do. But you know that if they get what they reasonably and logistically want, they're going to be unsatisfied on that larger story level, which is your sole responsibility, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Now, some people will disagree because I know some people are like, are like, oh, the role players are storytellers too. I agree with that to an extent. Sure. But also when I'm a PC, I like the idea that I'm living in a story but mm-hmm. behaving as rationally as I can. Yeah. So what is that mindset as a GM when you're siphoning information and I think there are moments where you hit those nat 20s or they guess something or something moves in an interesting way. What are the tools at your disposal? Because I've definitely been in moments as a DM where I've been like, well, you rolled the nat 20, so I'm just going to tell you. And then you tell them and you're like, instead of you find, it would almost be like the thing of, here's the example I'll give. Luke Skywalker's fussing around in the Death Star in the first movie. He rolls a nat 20 when he's at the security computer. Does he find a file that says Darth Vader's his dad? 
You know what I mean? Like right there. And he's like, oh, shit, Darth Vader's my dad. No, but I would say that 20 is to put the plasma torpedo down the exhaust port. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, in in like pending what information they already possess, like in, to, in, to continue that that example, I would have like the net 20 check of the computer reveal the exhaust port if they didn't know it was there. Yeah, uh, I would have it reveal, you know, Darth Vader is on deck 12 and his shuttle's on deck 16, you know. Um, I, I would have them uh, intercept comm traffic that the stormtroopers know they're there and are on the way. Yeah, y You know, I mean, I mean there, there's, there's lots of ways to um, reward them in a way that doesn't, like, completely inhibit things. Yeah. But that being said, though, if that same character, again, you know, Luke Skywalker's communing with the Force, and he's expressly looking for information about Darth Vader, like, expressly. But yeah. you stated outright, I'm communing with the Force. I mean, we're mixing up systems here. Stay with us, nerds. I know that it's... <laughs> uh, it's but, uh, you know, they rolled a crit in the system of your choice. Yeah. I would then say to them... Yes, there is a connection in him that speaks to your blood. Yeah. Or or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. So that's really fascinating because again what what can happen if you uh, as a game master are like I'm going to honor these roles to the utmost is like oh I honored the role. That's very cool. But now we don't get the scene on the bridge where right. Darth Vader says Luke I'm your father, right? Mm -hmm. Um uh uh so that's really important. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that you're hitting on something really true, which is as a dungeon master, do your best to serve both those masters. Yeah. To say, I'm going to reward you because you rolled this incredible role. But that doesn't mean that you should totally abandon uh, what you know is a healthier siphoning out of information over the course of a story. Sure, yeah, because then it becomes counterproductive and, dare I say, disingenuous. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, not to belabor the point, but it is uh, my job to belabor points. I'm a writer. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's it's the experience. Yeah. It's the experience. I, I think, um, like, my actual background is marketing. You know, that's my actual discipline. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a rule in sales, if you're any good at it, is when someone says yes, stop talking. <laughs> because you can talk your way out of a say, well, they're like, yeah, okay, I want it. And you're like, well, no, let me keep telling you what it does. And then you, you bore them, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the same thing is, is true in a story. If your job is to provide an experience and get an emotional reaction out of someone, and then you do that, you're like, yeah. the monster's here. And they're like, ah, and you're like, but the monster also has two heads. You're like, yeah. no, I mean, like, you, already, <laughs> you already did it. Right. Yeah. No, you, you know, recognize when you're winning yeah. and, and then and then let that ride. And again, as long as your players are having an emotional reaction, it doesn't necessarily have to be a happy one, a sad one. Like what? As long as they're feeling something, mm -hmm. you are succeeding. And I will say, since I haven't given my game mastering and playing soliloquy, I would just say this one thing. I'll give you the micro version of it. Uh, if you're thinking about running a game, do it. So I can say do it. People hit me up all the time and they're like, well, I want to prepare this and prepare that. And I'm like, don't make it out into your mind to be this voluminous thing that you have to do. Like if it's your jam to write a huge backstory, write a huge backstory. If that's not your jam, start off and be like, okay, so two dwarves and an elf are sitting in a tavern. That's been the start of games since the, for the last 50 years. It's still a valid one. So get your friends together, play, have a good time. Don't worry about it. As long as people are enjoying it, you cannot do it wrong. The rules are there to facilitate the narrative, not the other way around. Hell yeah. Uh, I cannot more enthusiastically agree to any piece of advice. You got to get out there and play the game. Uh, uh, and certainly you have watched this uh, vodcast, so you've gotten some tips to get you started off. Uh, but there's nothing that's going to sharpen your edge as a storyteller more than getting in and doing the damn thing. Mm -hmm. Like our friend Alphonse. This guy's got it. That's how sharp his edge is. Chopped <laughs> right. yeah. his own arm off. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. My guest today has been B. Dave Walters. Dave, thank you so much. This has been Adventuring Academy. We'll catch you guys next time. Dropout Podcasts.